You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Good morning. You can be seated. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Jude. Uh, if you want to start at Revelation, back up a book, that would work. Or if you start with 1 John, go 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you find this little book of Jude. I am, I'm convinced that um, Jude is probably one of the most neglected books in the New Testament, if not the whole Bible. So we want to spend some time in it today over the next couple of weeks. So we're glad that you're here this morning. We have several guests this morning. We're glad that you're here. I would love to connect with you after the service. Just get your name and... And just to get to know each other if you have some time at the end. Jude, and there, there are no chapters in Jude, so Jude 1, let's pick it up there. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we pause this morning and we just want you to know how grateful we are. We're grateful, Father, to be part of this fellowship. And we're grateful to have your word. We're grateful, Father, that you have brought us from death and the life. We're grateful that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We're grateful for the great commission that you've given us. The Lord, it wasn't a suggestion, but a commandment to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that you've commanded us. And you said that you would be with us in that mission. And we're thankful for that. Father, I pray that you got us in your word this morning. We recognize that not just in our area, but all across the globe, the church is under attack just as it has been since the day it started. And Father, we know that your word says that until you come back, the church is going to continue to be under attack. So, Father, help us to contend for the faith. Help us to stand firm. Help us to love well. And, Father, help us to honor you in all things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be surprised to find out. Maybe you knew this. Maybe you didn't. But Jesus had some brothers and sisters half-brothers. They didn't share the same father. As you know, uh, the Bethlehem story, the Christmas story, uh, Mary overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, conceives a child as a virgin. And of course, that child is the Messiah, the one who would go to the cross, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What you may not know is inside that household were some other siblings, some brothers and some sisters. And in Matthew chapter 13, you don't have to turn over there. We find out that there's four brothers, and those four brothers are named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Now, Judas, obviously not the same Judas of the 12, 
but a different Judas. But we know his name as Jude, the one who wrote the very letter that we're going to look at this morning and then over the next couple of weeks. Now, what would it have been like to grow up in the same house with Jesus as a sibling? I mean, that, that had to be rather unique. I mean, he's perfect, right? The Bible says that he didn't sin any at all, and that includes in his childhood. We don't have a lot of information about Jesus' childhood, but with this we know that, that he was both God and man. What would it have been like to grow up with the God-man as one of your siblings. I mean, he could do no wrong. He, he never disobeyed his parents. I mean, that would have been a hard existence as a sibling who's born into sin as the other four brothers were. There were sisters as well. We don't have their names. But what's interesting to me is, is that later in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, you can turn over there later, you'll find this. <laughs> These siblings that grew up with Jesus, well, they didn't accept him as Messiah. Early on, they thought that their brother was insane. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, they, they said that Jesus is out of his head. They, they did not believe in him as Messiah. They did not accept him as Messiah. That would happen later in life. But at that moment that Jesus begins his ministry, at that moment that his popularity begins to grow, the very people of his family, the very people that were closest to him, the very people that saw his life growing up in that carpenter's home, they didn't believe in him. And they thought he was insane. So I find it very interesting that Jude starts out this letter. We don't know whom this letter is directed towards. All we can do is look at the issues that were happening. Uh, no doubt this letter is written to a church body, a group of believers. Uh, no doubt that, that those believers were probably had a Jewish background. The, what I'll have to share with you next week kind of shows us that the audience would have had to have known a little bit of Jewish history. So I believe this was probably a Jewish audience, people who, who were once Jewish who came to faith in Christ as Messiah. But what I find very interesting is how Jude starts out his letter. Now, if I was writing this letter as the half-brother of Jesus, you got to know that when I start this letter off, I'm going to start out with that. Okay, church so-and-so, my name is Jude. And by the way, just so you know, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. Yeah, I'm that guy. I'm going to be very proud of that. I'm going to bring that up on a regular basis. Notice how Jude starts his letter. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. See that word servant? It may be servant in your translation. It may be slave. It's the Greek word doulos. It is the word of, well, a slave to his master. Someone who is completely surrendered and submitted to someone greater than themselves. Not by force, but by choice. So, so Jude didn't start out his letter by saying, hey guys, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I grew up with Jesus. No, he starts out by saying, I have a master and I am his servant. I, I have a king and I am his subject. I have, I have a Lord who is over my life, which means I have surrendered my life to this king. I am a servant of Jesus Christ and I'm also a brother of James. So he kind of did slide it in there because a brother of James, the one who wrote the book James, is also a half-brother of Jesus. Jude starts out and he says, I'm writing to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So he is writing to people who have put their faith in Christ. He is writing to the body of Christ. And he's writing to them because he has a very deep concern. 
And this is a concern that is shared by Paul in his writings. It's also shared by John in his writings. Peter alludes to it. That at the beginning of the church in Acts 1 and Acts 2 where we have the Holy Spirit falling in the upper room, people for the first time are filled with the Holy Spirit and dwell with the Holy Spirit. They spill out of that upper room and Peter, the most unlikely, yeah, the same guy who denied Jesus, the same one that Jesus restored after the resurrection, he walks out of that upper room and he begins to preach a message to the people in the streets of Jerusalem. The people who are in the streets are the very ones who just previously were crying for Jesus, this one who claims to be Messiah, that he needs to be put to, be, to, be, to death. Give us Barabbas. That's the same people that are in those streets. Peter walks out and preaches a message that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that the very one that you have put to death, the very one that you hung on a cross, is the very one that God had ordained, the very one that the Jewish people had been looking for. And as a result of that message, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. And then in Acts 2, 41 through 47, we see the New Testament church, the earliest model of the New Testament church. And what do we see? We see teaching of the doctrines of the faith. We see them praying together. We see them doing life together. We see them breaking bread, having meals together. But not only that, but, but observing the Lord's table together. From the time you get from Acts 2 to Acts 6, we have somewhere between 10 and 15,000 believers in a very short period of time, about five to six years. By the time you get to Paul and Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road and Paul goes out, we have several thousand, much more than that. Historians tell us it could be even 20 to 30, maybe even 50,000 believers in a very short period of time. So what we have is the exponential growth of the gospel going forward, just as Jesus had commanded his witnesses to do. But at the same time, the gospel is spreading. At the same time, people are sharing the gospel in places like Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And then eventually Paul goes to Rome, has plans to take it all the way to Spain. Something else is growing at the same time. The hatred for the church. Hatred for the gospel. And over time, what happens is the attacks come more frequent. The divisions become more defined as the church history continues on. People begin to take up positions against the church and begin to infiltrate the church, begin to get involved with the church, not for the sake of building up, but for the sake of tearing down. Because the church was a threat. Satan... You know, I come up with a pretty ingenious plan. Let's, let's destroy or attempt to destroy the church from the inside out. Now, we can attack it from the outside, and those attacks continue to today. But, but what if we could place a few inside the church? What if, we could, what if we could get a few people inside the church who have no care, no desire for God whatsoever? They play a part, but ultimately... They seek to destroy. This is a common theme throughout the New Testament. Paul writes about it. Paul talks to his, his protege, his son in the faith, Timothy, first and second Timothy, and he says to Timothy, Timothy, be careful. Because as you pastor that church in Ephesus, people are going to try to creep in to tear it down. Paul even told the elders of the church at Ephesus years earlier. He says, I'm concerned that, that when I leave you, I'm concerned that 
that wolves in sheep's clothing are going to creep in and they are going to, well, they're going to be ravenous wolves and they're going to destroy the flock at Ephesus. So a common theme all through Paul's writings and Peter's writings and John's writings is this idea that there are people out there that are not friendly at all towards the church. And church, let me tell you, there are people today in Robinson County, there are people today in North Carolina, there are people today in the United States of America that are not friendly towards the church. You've already ran into some of them. You might even have some of them that you work with. But see, here's what Jude is concerned about. Jude is concerned about those who are not friendly towards the church becoming part of the church. Paul was also concerned about that. Jude doesn't identify exactly who these people are. But I'll tell you what he does. He describes them pretty well. So today what we're going to take a look at in this letter where Jude's going to take us is he's writing to this group of believers and he's saying, now look, you have got to contend for the faith. You have got to stand firm. And, and Jude is going to give us a really good reason why we should stand firm. That's what we're going to talk about today. In the weeks ahead, we're going to dive a little deeper in to who these people are, the kind of lifestyles they were living, and what they were trying to accomplish. Today, he's going to give us just a quick sketch of who they are. Next week, we'll go deeper into understanding who are these people and what are they doing. And then, then Jude is going to say to the church, this is how you continue to stand firm. So let's pick it up in verse 3. He says, beloved, notice that word. Jude loves the church. Jude loves the people he's writing to. And he said, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write about something else. Now, now Jude is going to talk about the common salvation. He, he's going to talk about that. He meant to write a letter entirely about that. He meant to write a letter where he maybe unpacks this common salvation. I would have loved to have read that letter. But under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Jude says, there's something else I need to address, and it's very serious, and you need to listen up. He says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what I want to do this morning to start off with is let's talk about this common salvation. And I think this common salvation that Jude talks about and this faith once delivered to the saints, I think that is where we find our why as to standing firm in our doctrinal beliefs and what the Bible teaches. He says this common salvation. He's not talking about or not saying that salvation, the gospel, is common in the respect of it's just ordinary. No, the gospel and salvation is anything but ordinary. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is what took me, a broken, sinful, rebellious, even arrogant teenager, someone who was playing the part of church, someone who was going to church. You've heard the saying, my parents took me to church every time the doors were open. And I tell you right now that when you looked at me within that congregation, you would thought I was already a believer. But you looked at my life on Monday morning when I was on that high school campus and you'd see something totally different. And here's the thing, folks. I had no conviction about that. I had no issues with that. I could live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world, and I thought I had it all figured out. And when you looked at my life, if you looked on Sunday, you saw one thing. If you looked on Monday, you saw something else. And here's the thing. I had no conviction about that whatsoever. My parents knew I was lost. And deep down, I knew I was lost. You see, the thing that most people didn't see it was when I pillowed my head at night, I was scared to death to die. 
I had a pastor that I grew up with, and man, he he was a hard preacher, man. He I'm talking like foaming at the mouth, slobbering. I'm talking you you didn't even want to sit on the front row. Hardcore. So I, I heard all about hell. I heard all about heaven, and I heard all about faith in Jesus. I heard all of it. But somehow I thought I was going to be the one that didn't have to surrender, that didn't have to bow the knee to Jesus, that somehow I could live in my flesh and play the church thing. And guess what? Some of you are here this morning are doing exactly the same thing. This common salvation, not common meaning that it's, well, it's just every day. No, it was that salvation that took me from being that guy to born again. Taking me from being lost and alienated from God and deserving of his wrath to making me a son adopted by the creator of the universe. That's insane, isn't it? That all the sin and rebellion that I've lived in for years, that, that God can even forgive me of that, but not only forgive me, take it a step further and says, you know what? I am never going to condemn you because of what you did or what you will ever do. And not only that, take it a step further and says, oh, by the way, I'm going to adopt you as my son. You are going to be a joint heir with Christ. That is insane, folks. That's anything but common. That's amazing. It's extraordinary. It's beautiful. No, what Jude is talking about is this common salvation. The same people that he's writing to, the people that he's writing to, the audience of this letter, they came to salvation exactly the way you did. Think about this. There is a chain that goes all the way back to Pentecost of people just like you and I, broken people, addicted people, people who've been hurt, people who've been forgotten, People who were poor and people who were rich. And all of those people, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their background, had an opportunity to hear the gospel, respond by faith. They were transformed in that single moment, a common salvation. Common not as though it's ordinary, but common that we have a, a chain link that links us to all of those believers of the past. And they came to faith in Christ exactly the way you did. They didn't get to pick and choose. They didn't, they didn't get to devise their own salvation. They didn't bargain with God to figure it out. They surrendered their life to Christ and his blood cleansed them of all of their unrighteousness. That's how I came in. That's how you came in. And for those of you who haven't put your faith in Jesus, that is the only way that you'll ever be redeemed and adopted by God. Amen. There is not multiple paths. There's a common salvation and it's common to all of those in our past who've come before us and were transformed by it. You didn't develop it on your own. You didn't come up with this idea of salvation on your own. You didn't sit down with God and say, hey God, I tell you what, I'll follow Jesus if I can keep a few of these things in my life. Down through the years, um, when I've had the opportunity to sit down with someone and share the gospel with them, I can't tell you how many times this question has come up. Okay, I, the person sitting across from me will say, okay, I, I understand what you're saying. I understand that we're, that we're all sinful, and I understand that what Jesus did. I understand it. I can, I can make sense of that. But, but let me ask you a question. Can, can I continue in this sin? Can I continue in this lifestyle and follow Jesus? That's the question that's posed to me. And without hesitation, all the times that question has come, I look that person in the eye and go, when I came to faith in Christ, I had to surrender all. 
I couldn't bring the world with me. I couldn't bring the baggage that I've been carrying for so long. Christ asked me to lay all of that down. And so the answer to your question is no. You cannot have any other gods. You cannot have anything else that's controlling your life. This common salvation is that which every person who's come to faith in Christ has come to that moment where they decided that Christ was more important than their lifestyle. Christ was more important than their addictions. Christ was more important than the things they loved in their flesh. That Christ and his salvation was more important than anything they found in their life. And in that moment, there was no hesitation to lay it all aside. Is that where you are this morning? I hope it is. Common salvation. Notice this. Jude describes it as a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What does he mean by that? So we understand faith to be that which we believe that we act upon. So it's, it's, it's a combination of believing something, but being willing to act and trust on that belief. That is what faith is, the way the Bible describes it. But that's not what Jude is talking about here. Jude is talking about a faith that was delivered, a faith that was handed down. What he means is there is a set of beliefs, doctrinal beliefs, theological beliefs that's been handed down through the course of history that summarizes that is, in fact, the gospel itself. And he says that this faith, this, this set of teachings, the gospel itself, was once for all delivered to the saints. What I find today is there's a common religion. The common religion of the day is, is that we live for ourselves. It's not anything new. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you find it there. Adam and Eve wanting to do their own thing. But, the, but this religion has been pervasive all down through time, and it's, it's the idea that that I can live as I want to live, that I should be able to live the way I want to live. And so therefore, this faith that's been delivered to us comes in direct conflict with this religion that we all run towards, and that is, I want to do what I want to do. Jude says, this faith was delivered once. It is not something that we are to be adding to. It is not something that we're to be taking from. It is not something that we force our opinions on. It is not something that we erode away. It is not something that we, that we explain away. It is not something that we say, okay, we have these doctrines of the Christian faith here, but, but those things don't really fit our culture anymore. They need to be updated. So, so the idea is, is that, that somehow this truth, this faith, this gospel, this, this set of doctrinal understandings and beliefs about salvation has been handed down and it gets to our generation and, and the generations before us and we sit down and go, that ain't good enough. Man, that's offensive. So we, we need to water that down. We need to change that around. Jude says it was a faith once delivered. We don't have the option to add to it. You didn't develop it. It is not yours. It is meant to be given away to others. But you don't have the right to adjust it or to or redefine it. It comes from the very heart of God. And it is meant to not only change your life, but to change the lives of others. But the problem we see today, the problem that we find is that this morning on TV, if you go on, flip on Inspirational Network, you're going to find somebody somewhere teaching a group of people 
that your works are good enough. So this idea of, of Jesus Christ being the only way of salvation has been shifted to, no, you can be good enough. You, you know what? If, you, if you'll come to church, if you'll give me some money, isn't that interesting that a lot of the folks who are on TV this morning, they're saying, if you'll just give me some money, I can guarantee you that you're going to go to heaven. You ought to be very nervous about that. Send me a check. The idea is, is that somehow you can be good enough. That by showing up once a month, throwing some money in the offering plate, maybe serving some, that somehow in your mind you've decided that by doing those things, it's going to tip God's favor towards you just enough that when you die and you stand before him, God's going to go, you know what? You went to church just enough. Man, if you'd have missed one more Sunday, though, I'd have had to count you out. But you, man, you, you, you just barely got, boy, if you'd have gave, that one Sunday, you gave five bucks. If you'd have gave four, 50, I'm sorry, you'd have been out. But that extra 50 cents tipped it just enough. That is ludicrous, folks. But yet all across our country, there are people preaching and proclaiming this idea that somehow in you, there's enough goodness to get you across the line. And it's a lot right out of the pit of hell. Man, y'all are getting quiet on me. Don't do that. I'm not angry with you this morning. I'm just here to tell you the truth. The truth is, the same problem that Jude had to deal with, same problem we got to deal with. Listen to what he says. He says that there is a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Back up just a little bit and you'll see the imperative there that we are to contend for the faith. We are to contend for the faith. That word contend means that we are to struggle for, we are to stand upon. Dare we even say fight for the truth? The word contend, the Greek behind it, has this connotation of being combative. It's, it's almost like a military term. He says we're to contend for the faith. But what does he mean to contend for the faith? So if we're going to contend, fight for something, what are we fighting for? So let me, let me help you with this this morning because... Years ago, I had a, a guy that I was working with at the plant before God called me into ministry, and he was Jehovah Witness. And we, we would sit down, and we would talk at lunch every day, and, and we had some really good discussions. And one day, it, we kind of came down to this moment because you understand that those who are Jehovah Witness do not believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus. There's several others, but that seemed to be the thing that he and I talked about the most was the resurrection and this is what he said. He looked at me one morning and he, or at lunch one day and he said, so you're telling me that if I don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus that I'm not a Christian? How would you answer that question? I'll tell you how I answered it. I took him to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul answered it very well there. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says very clearly and concisely, no gray area here. He says, if there was not a bodily resurrection, get this, there is no faith, there is no salvation, there, there is no, no life with God after this life. In other words, Paul says that we're all living a great, big, fanciful joke if Jesus didn't bodily resurrect. That you are bound for your sins, bound to health because of your sins. You've never been forgiven. If Jesus Christ is in a tomb somewhere, then our faith is a joke. Does it sound to me like belief in the resurrection, bodily resurrection, is important to our faith? Absolutely. And I looked at that brother across the table. Brother, as far as a friend, not in Christ, but a brother is a friend. And I looked at him and I said, as clearly as I could, 
You're exactly right. If you don't believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you're lost. So what else would you add to that list? What, what is it that we're contending for? Let me give you a few. If you want to write these down, by all means, they're not going to surprise you. So what is the faith that was once delivered to us? The first one, I think this is where you have to start, is the inerrancy, the perfection, the beauty of God's word. You see, everything else I'm going to tell you is going to flow from here. So we as a church and me as their pastor and our elders, we, we all agree that the 66 books of this Bible, the 66 books, Genesis to Revelation, is God's perfect revelation to us. It has no errors. It does not need to be updated. It doesn't need to be added to or subtracted from. It is God's revelation to you and me, period. We stand upon it without apology. When we want to understand what our faith is and how to live it out, where do we go? We don't go to a commentary. We go to his word. This is God's word to you. There are no other books. These 66 books is all you need. You don't need anything else. And they are perfect just as they are. Secondly, we believe in the full and eternal deity of Christ. Sounds crazy. It's hard to wrap your mind around, but get this. Jesus was both God and man. 100%. He's, he's both God and man. Go to Lazarus' tomb. What do you find there? You find Jesus weeping. Why is he weeping? Because his heart is broken because his friends are all weeping around him. And he looks at a tomb and his friend has died. He, I, I think on that moment when Jesus looked around the tomb of Lazarus that day, he sees the effect of sin. He sees the effect of what Adam and Eve did in the garden and how it's played out down through time. He looks around and the only response Jesus has got in that moment is the verse you learned as a kid. Jesus wept. We see his humanity there. We see him as a human being crying over the death of a friend. But wait just a moment. Just a, just a few moments later, they pull the stone back from this tomb. Guy's already rotting. And, and Jesus says a few words and calls Lazarus forth from the tomb, and a dead man walks. Only God can do that. So on the one hand, Jesus is weeping over the death of a friend, and what sin has done to the world. And just within mere moments, that same man calls Jesus or calls Lazarus back to life. And there we have in one moment the perfect picture of the God-man. We believe and we stand upon the eternal, full deity of Christ. Amen. Number three, we believe in the virgin birth and the sinless life of Jesus. Those two are connected. Yes, we believe that Mary, having never known a man, conceives of a child in her womb by the Holy Spirit. And she gives birth to a son without the involvement of Joseph or any other man. And that man, Jesus Christ, grows up and, of course, lives a sinless life. He never sinned in word. He never sinned in deed. He never sinned in thought. Absolutely perfect and pure. The virgin birth, the virgin conception is what helps us to understand that the sin nature that you and I were born with, well, Jesus didn't have that sin nature. Number four, we believe the historical creation of man and woman in the image of God, what we know to be the Imago Dei, that every human being 
knit together in our mother's womb by God himself, that we are unique, that there's never been anyone like you, there will never be anyone else like you, even if you have a twin, you're still very different. That you bear the image of God, and I, I love this illustration because I think it speaks to the Imago day in us. This group of people up on the stage that, that was leading us in worship this morning, I'm always amazed by the talent of these people because I have, well, none of it. <laughs> I can't play anything and I certainly can't sing. But here you have people playing keyboards and drums and guitars and all this technology that all these people are running and, and it comes together in a single moment of time where the music is played and we sing along and it, and it just fits together perfectly. You know what that is? That is revealing to you the image of God in us, that God is creative and that God is beautiful and that God gave us music and art and that when we participate in that, we are testifying to the Imago Dei in us that every single human being bears the characteristics of God, not that you are God, but that you, you've been given some characters. You have the ability to reason. You have the ability to, to think. You have the ability to create. We believe that all the way back, the historical creation of man and woman, our great, 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 however many times you want to throw that in there, grandparents, we believe in the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. Is that the faith that's been handed down to us? Yes. Because we bear the image of God, because we are knit together in our mother's womb, we believe that you are intrinsically valuable. You are valuable beyond anything you could even imagine. So the conversation that you're having with yourself every day that just, that always talks down to yourself, you're always running yourself down, you're always condemning yourself. Look, that could not be further from what God wants for you. What God wants from you is to understand that you are a beautiful creation of his hands and that you have value. The senior adults that are in the nursing home who are bedridden, who can no longer speak, who have a, a feeding tube in their stomach, they bear the image of God and they are valuable. The baby in the womb at conception is valuable to God. And we hold that as a doctrine of our church, a faith handed down to us. We believe in the sacred bond of marriage between one man and one woman. Down through the years, unfortunately, the church has not always modeled marriage the way it was intended. But yet, in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, here's, here's God and he's making all of these things, creating. And he creates Adam. And all along as he's creating, he says, man, this is good, this is good, this is good. He looks at Adam and says, there's something that's not good here. There's no one like Adam. So he creates woman, puts her with Adam, and, and you've heard me say this. It's a bad joke, but I think it'll break the tension a little bit. You know why she's called woman, right? It's because when Adam saw her, he went, whoa, man. Anyway, he says, you will become one flesh. You'll become one physically. You'll become one emotionally. You'll become one spiritually. And then what I want you to do is I want you to procreate. I want you to, to fill the world with more people who bear the Imago Dei. So as a, a church body, we believe 
and the sacred bond of marriage that began right there at the creation event between one man and one woman. Next, the sinfulness of all humanity. We, we've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. Look, culture, didn't, culture did not infiltrate my life and cause me to be bad, okay? So we have this discussion that goes on in, in public about, you know, the culture has some problems in it. Society has some problems in it. And the idea is, is that you were born good, but then as you grow up, society corrupts you. The problem is they have that exactly backwards. What's happened is, is the society is corrupted because society is filled with corrupt people. And we are born with that corruption. We are born with a proclivity to rebel. We are born with a desire to do our own thing. And that starts out very young in life. It's undeniable that we don't have to teach our kids to do the wrong thing. We don't have to teach them about, hey, here are the wrong. We have to teach them to do the right things. Why? Because the wrong things are inherent. So we believe in the sinfulness of all humanity. Next, we believe in the substitutionary death of Christ for sinners. We believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross, and as he's dying on that cross, as the world turned black and dark, as we see, as we hear the groans from the cross, what is happening in that moment is Jesus is not dying because he's a guilty sinner. He's not dying because he's guilty of blasphemy. He's dying because the sins of all humanity has been placed upon him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says very clearly, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? So that we could go free. So we believe that Jesus became that substitute where God pours out his wrath that we deserved upon his own son. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ from the grave. He was not Casper the ghost. He, he was bodily resurrected. They touch him. They see the scars in his hands. Some of the disciples have a meal with him at the side of the the lake. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are not multiple paths to heaven. I was asked one time by someone who was of a Buddhist persuasion, Buddhist religion, and the, and the question was, so there are a lot of good people in Buddhism, and there's a lot of good people in Islam, and there's a lot of good people Fill in the blank of the religion. And, and so this guy goes through this long conversation about all the good people he sees in all these different religions. And then he looks me in the eye and he says to me, are you trying to tell me then that all these good people who are faithfully adhered to their religion, who are doing good things and serving humanity and loving people and building hospitals and building colleges and taking care of orphans, you're telling me that because their faith is not in the Jesus that you believe in, that they're lost? And I looked at him and I said to him, it is through Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, and all others are lost. I'm not looking for applause. I'm just trying to tell you this morning that we have had a faith handed to us we have no right to change it. We have no right to adapt it. We have no right to add to it or subtract from it. And yet there are people all over the TV this morning, all over social media who are saying, you know, there's all kinds of ways to heaven. There's all kinds of ways to utopia. And Jude says, contend for the faith. Finally, we believe in the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. The amazing thing about Christ's kingdom is it's here and now. It's now, but it's also later. So now we have the kingdom expanding. Get this, the kingdom is expanding in places like Iraq. Who would have ever thought? 
the place that for many of us, you know, growing up through all the terrorism and the war on terrorism and all that stuff, and we know what we, what we think we know about Iraq. But right now, in this moment, there is a revival spreading across Iraq. And guess who's leading it? Leading it? Muslim women, formerly Muslim women, who have now put their faith in Jesus Christ, and they are spreading the gospel all through Iraq. It's incredible. In places like China, but even in North Korea, there are believers who are willing to die for the faith. They're part of the kingdom. They have a king. But there's a king who's going to come back. That king is going to establish his kingdom on earth. And we as a church believe that this is part of the faith that was handed down to us. So church, make sure you understand that there are crucial key doctrines and what it means to be a Christian. And when we depart from those doctrines, we cease to be a church, we cease to be faithful, and we cease to be handing along the faith that was passed down to us. Do you know what you believe? Do you know why you believe it? Notice what Jude is going to say next. He says, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. You see, the thing is, Jude understood this, Paul understood this. The wolves in sheep's clothing, they come with sheep's clothing on for a reason. So they're not going to walk in the back door with a sign around their neck saying, I'm here to destroy your church. They're not going to come in and act like a wolf. They're not going to come in and say, I believe in all the things that y'all believe. Well, they're going to say that, but later on you're going to find out that something's not right. He says they are creeping in unnoticed. They're stealth, or stealthy, I guess would be the right way to put that. Charles Spurgeon says this, he said, quote, Satan knows right well that one devil in a church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. They act like friends, but they're actually enemies. They act like sheep, but they're actually wolves. And their goal is to slip in unnoticed. When I was um, growing up in the small church that I grew up in, I don't know if your church did this when you were a kid, and, or maybe the church that, if you're here today visiting from another church, maybe this is how your church does it, and maybe this will be a warning. We might, might want to think this through. My pastor would stand in front of the church at the invitation, and he would say, if anybody wants to join the church today, we're going to open the doors to the church for membership, and if you want to join, just come down front. So people would come down front, music's playing, and the pastor would lean over and I'd see him whisper into the ear of the person, and that person would whisper back in his ear, and I know what he was asking because he told us that he's asking these people, have they been born again, and have they been baptized by immersion? And the person says to the pastor, and this may be the first time the pastor's ever met him, has no home visits, no anything, don't know anything about him. The person where well, yeah, sure, yeah, I'm a Christian, I've been baptized, okay, great. And he turns to the church after the end of the song, he says, okay, Joe and Susie's come forward to join our church, and, and they're telling me that they're, they're born-again believers, they've been baptized, what's your, what's your pleasure, church? And the church says, well, let's accept them as members. And next thing you know, the church comes down and shakes hands. Could it possibly be, could it be that in that moment you have some wolves in sheep's clothing? Yes, it happened in my church that I grew up in. And it ended up splitting that church right down the middle. And it started with some sheep that turned out to be wolves. Church, you may be surprised to hear this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. 
over my 10 and a half years of being your pastor, there have been times I've had to ask people to leave. Wasn't easy. I didn't do it by myself. But there were people who came into this fellowship that were wolves. And they were seeking to destroy this fellowship. And I had to sit them down, look at them, and say, I don't want you to come back. I know what you're about. I know what you're going to do. And I don't want to see you come back. I've had to do that more than once. But you've called me and you've asked me to be your shepherd. And one of the key roles of a shepherd is to protect the flock. And while it, gets, while it got ugly sometimes and while it's been hard and while I've lost sleep over it, I've never lost sleep over the ones I've asked to leave. Not a time. Because I knew what they were going to do. Because they had a history of doing it. Once I found out their history, I found out that their history is littered with tearing churches apart. And in those moments, I have a choice. Do I want to be liked by them or do I want to do what God's word says for me to do? And I tried to do that to the best of my ability. Jude says they're crying, trying to creep in. They're trying to creep in unnoticed. Who are these people? Well, Jude says that who long ago were designated for condemnation. Let me make sure you understand that teaching, proclaiming a false gospel, trying to divide his church, trying to hurt his church, well, God kind of takes that personally. That's a serious offense. And, and so God, knowing your heart, knowing what you're about, he has set you apart for condemnation. That's strong words, isn't it? Jesus says they're ungodly people. Ungodly meaning that they disregard the very God they claim to love. Isn't that, all? Isn't that crazy? So, so the sheep part of this, oh, I love God. Oh, I love Jesus. Oh, I love the church. But the wolf that's on the inside, no, they disregard. They even despise God. They don't even care a thing about his word or his church. He says they're ungodly. Notice what he says next. He says these people, they pervert. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. What does that mean? Some of your translations may say that for sensuality. It may say license. Here's what he's saying. They take the grace of God and they turn it around for freedom to live how you want to live. This is what it sounds like. Well, I believe in Jesus, or I believe in God. That's usually the term I hear. I believe in God, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the church, but I, I don't believe in all this stuff where it talks about holiness. I don't, believe, I don't believe that you should have to live your life by any kind of standards. I believe that you should be able to seize the day and live your life how you want to live. So therefore, I can, I can view pornography. I don't see a problem with that. And, and I, can, I can drink to excess. I don't see a problem with that. And, and I can stick an needle in my heart. I don't see any problem with that. And I, I'm just as part of God's kingdom as you are, although the Bible says something completely different. So the idea is, is that, yes, I am in the grace of God, but yet I'm living my life in a way that is completely opposite of everything that the New Testament teaches me about following him. They have turned the grace of God into license. Well, I've got my fire insurance. I get to go to heaven. So while I'm here, I can live any way I want to live. I mean, God will forgive you, right? Turning God's grace into license. No rules, 
no constraints. We need to cast off the old vestiges of old religion. We need to move away from the Puritan ideas of holiness, and we need to figure out how we can call ourselves a follower of Jesus yet live just like the world lives. And unfortunately, there are a lot of churches who are preaching exactly that. That's not the faith that was handed down. That's something of man. It's a work of man. And if you go home and turn on your TV this morning, you can probably find somebody preaching exactly that. Finally, he says, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This, this phrase, what was, it, was it that these wolves in sheep's clothing walked in the door and said, we deny the deity of Christ? Probably not. Was it when they walked into the church, they they said, we, we're going to deny the authority of Scripture while at the same time presenting themselves as sheep? Probably not, but here's what they did. They were not living under the lordship of Christ. What does that mean? What it means is they may claim that Jesus is their Savior, but in their day-to-day -day life, they have no boundaries. They have no restrictions. They have no way in which they live their life that's any different than what the world's doing. So here's what they do. They try to claim that, that Jesus on the one hand can be Savior but not Lord. I would argue that they're a package deal. If Jesus is your Savior and he's changed you from the inside out, your sole desire in life is, get this, to please him. That's part of what it means to be changed. Yeah, I don't understand all the theology. I don't understand all the doctrine, but there is something fundamentally about me that I can no longer go down that path. I can no longer do the things that I once did. It's because, well, the new birth. You're a new creation in Christ. As I've told you before, I tried for a long time to live both ways. You see, Sunday I looked a certain way because I was expected to look a certain way on Sunday. But as soon as I got to high school campus on Monday, oh, man, that all went out the window. And for a long time, I thought, I thought that I could have Jesus as my Savior. I've got my fire insurance. I, I'm going to heaven, right? Although I'd never confessed him, although I'd never surrendered to him, although my life pointed to something completely opposite, in that moment, I thought I had it figured out. The fact is, is that I didn't have Jesus as my Savior because he wasn't my Lord. And I didn't have him as Lord because he wasn't my Savior, which means I was lost. And there are some of you this morning here and watching online, they're in the same place. They denied our Master and Lord. They didn't obey him or follow him. They had a whole lot of words, but not a lot of actions. I heard this quote from a pastor. His name's James Merritt. I think he's got a big church somewhere. I've, I've read some of his stuff, but I, I, this quote caught my attention. He says, he says, quote, it is right to fight when you fight for what is right. Hmm. So there is a time, church, to fight for what you believe. When I say the word fight, I don't mean we're going to get physical. It doesn't mean we're going to be angry and mean people. The world doesn't need a bunch of mean, angry, Bible-thumping Christians. What they need is some people who love them but stand firm on what is true. That's what they need. That I can look at you in love and in kindness, but at the same time tell you what I believe, and I'm not moving from it. And if you give me the opportunity, I'm going to tell you what is true. I'm going to help you to see it. Hopefully by the way I live in front of you is going to say there's something different about that guy. But there's some things worth fighting for. 
And this faith that's been handed down, this faith that's been once given for all, that, folks, is worth fighting for. You see those doctrines that we talked about? Our church is going to stand right here, and we will not move off of it. Come what may, come what hardship may come, come what ostracizing may come, come what kind of pressures we may face as a church, come what, if, if they take away our nonprofit status, if, if they take away our, our, C, our, our 5013C of being a nonprofit, if they, if, they, if they try to take away our building, pass ordinances to whatever they need to do, I will stand right here upon God's word and I will not move. What about you? What about you? Do you know what you believe? Do you know the core doctrines of the Christian faith and are able to defend them with love and kindness, but yet firmness? Back in July of 2021, I asked this church to do something that you'd never done before. And quite frankly, I'd never been part of a church that had done it, but we did it. And here's why we did it. In 2021, July, I asked this church to come together and as a membership, approve a set of documents, our operating documents. We call them bylaws, but just a fancy word that says, this is how we're going to operate as a church. And as you know, we made a lot of changes in that. And, and leading up to that, I had a whole bunch of Q&A sessions where we talked about all the aspects of what we were changing. But there was one thing in those, in those bylaws that I thought was absolutely something we needed to do. And it was a church membership covenant. And it's a document that many of you have signed that says that these are the things that we understand means to be part of Hyde Park Baptist Church and that we voluntarily place ourselves under that teaching or that understanding of what the Christian faith is as following Jesus. And I also understand that this church is going to hold me accountable to that. Now, why do you think we put that in there? Why do you think that was something that we spent so much time talking about? It is because exactly of what Jude is saying in those verses, that we must contend for the faith, that we must understand that there are wolves in sheep's clothing who if they can creep in unnoticed, they will do it. And there have been many over the last many years, even since you enacted these new bodies, there have been people who hoped that they could creep into this fellowship unnoticed, but because we have something called starting point. Because we have multiple conversations with a person. Because we have a document that we place in front of them that they decide to place themselves under. You know what it's done? Well, it's been a gate. It's been a gate that says, wait a minute, this church, it's going to be very hard to creep in unnoticed there. So maybe, maybe I should just move on somewhere else. In closing, I want to ask you a few questions. Do you know what you believe? Better yet, do you know why you believe it? Not just what your Sunday school teacher told you. Not just what some preacher told you. Do you know why you believe what you believe? And when confronted with that, are you able to give a reason for the hope that is within you? If not, if not, then it could be that you're going to be a lunch or a dinner special for some wolves that are going to circle around you. It's time to know what you believe and why you believe it. It's time to quit playing both parts. It's time to say confidently and clearly that Jesus is both my Savior and my Lord, and I will follow him and no other. Is that where you are today? Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. 
For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.